Welcome to Common Voice, the podcast of the College of Public Health of Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. David Sarwar. I'm the Associate Dean for Research in the College of Public Health at Temple University, and I am the new co-host of our podcast, uh, called Common Voice, and it's my pleasure to welcome as my first guest as host, Dr. Jamie Riley. Uh, Dr. Riley's voice is going to sound very familiar to some of you because he, in fact, was the host for uh, the first series of episodes uh, for the podcast, and about 18 months in, we've decided to, to flip roles, and I'm going to take over the host duties, and I thought it would be a lot of fun and, and appropriate to have as my first guest, Dr. Riley, joining us. So, with that, Jamie, welcome to the other side of the microphone in the Common Voice yes. podcast. Yes, David, thank you so much for having me. I think, you know, you're actually already off to a much better start than 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 I was. The first seven podcasts we did, I thought this was called Common Talk, and uh, I called it the wrong thing. And I was like, you know, the talk, the podcast for the peasantry. Um, but you, so you're already, you're already, you know... <laughs> much better than better off than I am. So thanks for having me. Yeah, well, you know, I had to I had to practice that because unfortunately, I think I also got common talk in my head a little bit. <laughs> okay. And uh, so so I may or may not have practiced that intro. A little All bit. right, that's good. All right. No, so, no, I want to say anything. Yeah, so so for those of you who uh, haven't listened uh, to the podcast previously, Dr. Riley is a professor in our Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders. And much of his work is focused on Alzheimer's disease and aphasia. Now, many of you, many of you listening probably know a little bit about Alzheimer's disease and the havoc that it can wreak on, on individuals and families. But Jamie, tell us a little bit more about what is aphasia. Sure. No, yeah, that's great. Um, this is it's a very timely question. Um, uh, uh, so aphasia, we can think of as a loss of access to concepts through language. So when people lose the ability to uh, understand words or to retrieve words uh, when they want to produce language, um, they it manifests as a profound language disorder. Um, people are uh, get confused because they think it is a um, really an assault on people's competence or their intelligence, but it really isn't. Um, it is a you know, focal loss of language. So people, when they have strokes to the left side of their brain, they very often uh, lose the ability to, uh, to speak. They lose the ability to produce language, or they may lose the capacity for understanding the words that they hear. And these are all different forms of aphasia, um, depending on where the brain injury is. And how often does aphasia occur with a stroke? And then I think perhaps most importantly, once somebody suffers a stroke and they have aphasia, what are some of the strategies that are put into place to help somebody regain some of that language functioning? Good question. So uh, it depends. For most of us, we have our language tends to be lateralized on the left side of our brain. So when people have uh, strokes on the right side of their brain, they rarely have language problems. They rarely have aphasia. It happens occasionally. Very few of us have our language lateralized to the right hemisphere. But with the left hemisphere, um, I can't remember the stats exactly, but it's very, very common during the acute stages right after someone's had a stroke. Um, I think between 40 and 60% of people have some degree of aphasia 
right out of the gate. And most of them have a pretty, um, pretty near complete recovery. So when someone's in the hospital and they've had a stroke, um, um, they might be, they might have aphasia for about a week or so. They don't, are not understanding what the doctors are saying, what the nurses are. Um, they also have some degree of what's called dysarthria, which is, um, it almost sounds like they're, it, this is a problem more with uh, motor and speech where people are, have weakness on one side where they might sound like, people might perceive it as someone sounding like you're drunk. Um, so they have some degree of aphasia, but also it'll sound like slurring and imprecise um, articulation. For most people that resolves in a week or two. Um, and for some people, it uh, depending on the, the size of the stroke, exactly where it strikes, um, the, the aphasia and the dysarthria and other motor problems can be much more lasting and require um, more skilled and longer rehabilitation. So I want to stay with that issue of diagnosis for a minute because it's it's interesting to me and I'm surprised that in some cases the the aphasia can resolve so quickly. Um, and and obviously it sounds like you're saying that recovery is often related to where the damage is in the brain. How sophisticated is the field right now? In that if uh, somebody suffers a stroke and has the symptoms of aphasia that they can do, that the physicians can do a brain scan and the speech therapist can look at the, 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 the physical symptoms, what patients are and are not able to say and link the two up and say, this makes perfect sense because the scan is showing this and this is what we're seeing in terms of their language. It's a great question. I mean, right now there, it's been a big press in the field for in personalized medicine of, of can we can we shunt or can we can we uh, move people towards certain types of interventions? Can we do automatic referrals for when there's certain brain injury? There are a big uh, a big push in machine learning has been trying to use radiologic scans and saying, okay, what are the odds if you know if you have this percent lesion in this part of your cortex that you are going to have this profile of language deficit? But I mean, to be honest, I think they're pretty far away from that. Um, and why they are is that there tends to be very, very big individual differences in how language is later lateralized and organized. So one person can have a stroke that affects, you know, a lot of their left frontal lobe, and they look like someone else who has a stroke in their temporal lobe. Um, and so they can get some degree of diagnostic specificity based on guesses. But the severity of the impairment is uh, moderated by a lot of other things like your age, the plasticity. Uh, some people, when they, when they have small strokes, they have very global aphasia. They can only say one or two words. Some people have massive strokes and, and you'd be shocked that you, know, you really just wouldn't know anything's wrong. Um, and so figuring out those individual differences and the variability and what, what um, you know, the variance that comprises that variability has been a big challenge in our field. A lot of it now is based on phenotype. You have to go in and do bedside evals. And, you know, a person might have a very different profile than their scan says they will. Um, and matching the data up has been challenging. So it sounds like we're not quite there yet in terms of no. that one-to-one -one correspondence between what we might see on an fMRI and what we might see on a bedside eval. And you know, you threw in that phase, phrase machine learning, and, you know, I'm, I'm struck by the number of uh, our colleagues across the college and in collaboration with our, our colleagues in the School of Medicine who are now relying on machine-based learning to help us 
um, understand these more complex clinical relationships where they take smaller bits of data, maybe on uh, you know a couple hundred people, and then they put them into you know computer programs and they're able to extrapolate of well, if we had a sample size of several thousand or tens yes. of thousands, these are really the underlying relationships. So it sounds like you think there's great potential for machine learning to contribute to your field as well. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing, um, it, I mean, there's some pretty fascinating applications of it in, in terms of what we do in language research. So one of the big questions is spe specifically, one of the big strategies of our dementia management plan over the next 20 years is we're all, uh, people in the United States, people across most of the industrialized world are getting old, mm -hmm. uh, like older than ever before. And there's really no precedent for it. And one of the big challenges is, okay, well, how do we, how can we identify them as, as having, you know, advancing mild cognitive impairment or when, you know, what's early dementia before they start showing symptoms. And some of the most, some of the most sensitive markers are actually language. Uh, when people start, um, you know, making speech errors, making language errors, and one of the things with, with detecting that has been on naturalistic language samples. So computers are really, really good at detecting over time when someone's language is changing in very, very subtle ways. Um, and there are, you, there are machine, what are called classifiers that basically say like, okay, this person is the same. And then all of a sudden they're radically different and they're at risk. Mm -hmm. um, and so things, companies like Google, IBM is doing this. Um, is trying to build these machine classifiers based on things like telephone transcripts and things like that and writing transcripts of saying like, if you have a writing sample from the same person over time, you know, 20, 30 years of talking or, or and then you, you the machine can detect when there's an inflection point when things have really changed and say like, okay, this person's at risk. Now, the nice thing with that is that there are huge health inequities in diagnosis of dementia. There's not enough behavioral neurologists. People can't get in to see neurologists and get diagnosed. And at least the promise from machine learning is that, you know, this is, uh, these are, you know, a machine can process lots and lots of language samples without having to go into a neurologist and having uh, lumbar puncture, getting cerebrospinal fluid taken, scans and all sorts of things. So it, it can act as a screening tool. Beyond that, as like a real firm diagnostic tool of saying this person has this based on an algorithm, I'm super shaky on it. I think there are some people who will go full, you know, go the full Monty on that and are, are, are really like, you know, the promise of it is just that, you know, it's going to it's going to obviate, you know, radiologists and all sorts. Of, and I'm not of that ilk. Um, I don't know. I don't know if my full Monty reference was the. <laughs> no, well, I'm, I'm laughing because because uh, some of my questions have some other pop culture references in them, and unfortunately, I think by the time we're done today, we're going to date ourselves pretty. Yeah, familiar. I know. I'm not, I sure, know. I'm not sure how many people might have gotten the full Monty <laughs> reference in relation yeah. to the movie. <laughs> yeah, and then in retrospect, when I think about it, it's probably not the best metaphor, but you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so. Speaking, you know, you've been talking a lot about diagnosis. I want to pivot quickly and talk about treatment. Yes. Um, is when when people suffer from aphasia or Alzheimer's, tell us a little bit about treatment. And is this a situation where everyone who has these conditions gets the treatment that they need, or is this another example of health disparities that we see so frequently in the college where persons from underserved and underrepresented groups are oftentimes less likely to receive not only treatment,
but state-of-the-art treatment? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So there are huge disparities in, in rehabilitation. Um, there are huge disparities in you know, who gets and how people get rehabilitation, access to it, and how long it's reimbursed. Um, so two different things, two big things here. Um, aphasia or loss of language is common in both stroke, um, but also uh, in neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's disease. And the aphasia looks a little bit different in each of those. So in Alzheimer's disease, it's getting each person, every time you see them as a speech therapist, they're getting a little worse. The next day, they're a little worse. The next day, they're a little worse. They're losing language over time. Typically when people have had strokes, it's the opposite pattern where they're, it's not neurodegenerative, they're getting a little bit better each time or they're stable. So in the patients that we see with progressive aphasia, they're getting worse. We have to plan that like two years down the road, they, they could have lost you know, almost all language that they have now. So it's a very different like strategy, different tactics, different, different approach than you would do in someone who's just, you know, a, a 50 or 60 year old who's had a stroke and is hospitalized for the first time. So there's huge, um, you know, depending on the hospital that you're admitted, depending on the, you know, their links with, with rehabilitation settings. And, you know, David, I mean, you have the experience too, like, and knowing this and working in hospitals for years, it's the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? Like, how um, how aggressive your 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 caregivers are, your spouse, your kids in pushing for rehab, where you know getting to the best rehab and knowing like who to to nag in some ways and really how to advocate. And normal people don't have that, um, yeah. so you're really at the whims of like, okay, you know what uh, you know this hospital has has. Uh, you know, X relationships with for-profit, you know, skilled nursing facilities, and that's where we pipeline everyone. But you don't know all those things that are happening behind the scenes. Um, so a lot of it, yeah, depends on what hospital you're admitted to, how aggressive you have, you're, you're uh, advocating for rehab. And then, you know, at a societal level where Congress and, and Medicare are negotiating these like caps all the time of you know, if you have a stroke, you can only have X number of sessions of speech therapy, even if you're, even if you're, can barely talk. Um, it's, it's these sort of things that are, that are, uh, you know, as someone who's a speech language pathologist, I, I don't think of what's happening in Congress ever. But then when I read it, I'm like, wow, that is, you know, that is, has a real effect on people because like, I, you, you know, you can only do three sessions <laughs> before they won't pay anymore. And, you know, we work as, as healthcare providers, we're like, well, we'll just give people, we'll treat people till they don't need it anymore. But the reality is you can't do that in, when you're working, you know, in a, in a job where you're paid by someone. Yeah. So it's, no, yeah. I, and I think that's a critically important point. And I think also for our students across the college, both at the undergrad and the graduate level, to know that there is that tension point between the care that we want to deliver, the care that we're trained to deliver, and that there oftentimes are constraints beyond our control in terms of what we can do, that it's not as simple as I, I'm going to treat this person, always as simple as I'm going to treat this person indefinitely to get them back to 100% of their, their pre-injury, pre-stroke capacity. Oh, yeah, so, 100%. I mean, I think, you know, that was one of the most heartbreaking and really eye-opening things of being in you know, the first few years of really being a clinician is being like, wow, this is, you know, these are constraints on, are actually, you're sending people out really sick and really impaired people are who are, you know, hemiplegic, they really can't 
feed themselves and you're sending them home without anyone, uh, you know, are really, really minimally, you know, minimal care in helping, you know, a lot, especially when I see older adults that like, I don't know, it just, it, 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 it makes it hard. That part of the job becomes really, really hard. Um, it also makes you never want to get sick. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's like this thing of like, ah, we, you know, these are the holes in our, in our for-profit healthcare system. And I've talked to people like, I don't know, David, if you've talked to people like in the NHS or, you know, your colleagues in England about like whether it's better other places, like, especially for what you do with bariatric and really in, in, in clinical psychology of seeing people that really takes a while, even though things like cognitive behavioral therapy are pretty limited in terms mm -hmm. of time. But if they get more time, right, or if like a person, if the patient can be like, hey, like, I'm not ready, I still need some. If you have that, I think they have a little more latitude um, in Europe and the UK to see people longer, but I don't know. Um, I, I would agree with that. And I, I would say that what I'm struck by when I talk to my international colleagues, whether it's obesity care or mental health care, that um, when you try to explain the American system to them, you can almost see their eyes gloss over. Oh, and, and they're kind of like, wait a minute, that in, seems intuitively backwards to me. And um, yes, there are limitations to the NHS system and others, but once you're in the care, the care, you end up getting the care that you need and it's not restricted yeah. by the third party payer looking in from above. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's it. I mean, I think the good like analogy, like uh, I have terrible teeth and I got a root canal maybe three months ago or so. And, you know, they, they, if you've ever, have you ever had a root canal? I have. Oh yeah. So, I mean, you know, so they like, you know, open your tooth and it's this big gaping hole. And then, you know, and then I reached the point and they're like, okay, well, uh, the crown is, you know, is co considered cosmetic and it gets an extra $2,000. And I'm like, well, what happens if you don't have a crown? You know, there you you have no option. I mean, yeah. other than like leaving a gate, but that's our healthcare system, is right. Like, let's be, make a big open hole that you can't. Mm -hmm. You you have to have something covering it, or you'll have sepsis and die. Right. But then the consideration is like the thing that does cover it is is considered cosmetic, and then it's an extra two thousand dollars not covered by healthcare. Right. So it's and all imagine, and imagine how challenging that decision is in the moment. For the patient who doesn't have a credit card or that credit oh, yeah. card is maxed out and they have to make a spontaneous decision in an afternoon, if I do this, then what do I have to sacrifice? Do I have to be late with my rent payment? Do I have to change what, um, you know, what I buy for my, my children for the holidays? Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I... in really, really awkward situations that I don't think we can always appreciate. No, you're you're exactly right. I mean, it 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 hurts for me to put two thousand dollars on a credit card, and it takes me a while to pay off. But I'm not. Yeah, it's not. I'm not. You know, deciding on whether I can eat or not, or whether I can pay the bill or not, which is like it. it but when I think about that, especially with rehab, and you know, when people are in this vulnerable state, right? When they've had a brain injury, they are often confused. They're dazed. They don't know this system. Neurologists. They they they're just you know, and it feels terrible being in a hospital. You're exhausted, lights on all the time. You can't sleep, you know, and, and Lena just, you know, here's your papers, go home. Uh, so yeah, it's hard. Um, yeah. and it's hard, really, you know, harder on the most vulnerable. So I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, you are a member of the Saffron Center, which yes. uh, the founder of the University of Temple University, Russell Crownwell, 
has a has a very famous speech where he talks about acres of diamonds. And I would offer that the center, uh, both in terms of its longevity and its international reputation, is truly one of those diamonds of the university and probably your field more generally. Um, tell us a little bit about the mission of the center. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, um, uh, so the Eleanor Saf Eleanor Safran Center for Cognitive Neuroscience is really the um, the product of uh, my old PhD mentor Nadine Martin's work. Uh, so there was a woman who was here for years, uh, Eleanor Safran. She got me into this field uh, when I was doing my master's in speech pathology. Um, you know, it really took me under her wing. It was kind to me and encouraged me to be re a researcher. Um, and then I started the PhD and she passed away uh, like the first year that I was doing it. Um, and Nadine was very, Nadine Martin is very, very close with Eleanor and had always wanted to honor her. Um, and then over time, you know, established the center in her honor um, as a place that, that does you know, adult language disorder. So acquired language disorders and stroke, aphasia. So basically as a training model for people who are interested in neurolinguistics, which would be the study of how, how language is represented in the brain, and then recovery uh, from brain injury and how um, aphasia treatment works. So it's been a really neat place where, we, you know, we've had international scholars visiting often, we have, you know, great students, and we do, a bunch of us have our labs, like, kind of funnel through there and do, we all do research there. Um, it's just been phenomenal. And, and a lot of it, you know, 99% of it's driven by Nadine Martin's just dedication. Uh, Nadine, uh, for our listeners, Nadine is one of uh, the Laura H. Carnell professors in the college, which is like our distinguished professor. She's just fantastic. I can't say enough positive things about Nadine. Um, but yeah, she's, it's, this has been her, you know, her, one of the big missions of her career is to establish this kind of nexus for where, you know, people can come together and do this research. It's phenomenal. It's, it is fantastic. I completely agree with you. And as you know, I've had the great pleasure over the years when you host your annual conference of, of being able to make some opening remarks at the beginning mm -hmm. of the day and spend a little bit of time with all of you. And, and, you know, a lot of people don't realize that in the world of public health, departments such as yours, communication sciences and disorders, and centers like this aren't always seen in colleges of public health. So I'm, I'm curious as to how you feel that being in a college of public health has influenced your work? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really great question. So we became, so I'll give you know, some history. I was, uh, I was initially, I, I don't know if the word skeptical because I was always in a, a college of like, out, it, it, speech pathology is a weird field because it's like a little bit of psychology. It's a little bit of allied health. It's close to nursing. Mm -hmm. No one knows where it belongs. So mm -hmm. like over time, like, you know, sometimes we are in arts and sciences. Sometimes we're in allied health. And then um, about, you know, seven years ago, I, I can't, seven years ago-ish, we became a college of public health. Um, and, you know, we were, we were suddenly in a really, really different culture than we had been before. Um, and it was almost like, you know, I, I, you know, if you're in this field, if you're like, I, you know, I'm studying civil war, I'm studying the civil war, right? And then all of a sudden you're in a, a, a dental school and you're like, well, how do I make it? How do you make that fit in the... Uh, and you're like, well, I'm not going to, you know, st start studying molars. I mean, I'm still going to be a civil war expert, but I've got to really like figure out how I fit into that, uh, figure, figure, fit into that. And, and there are very natural fits. The more I've been in and, and, and work with people, they're very natural. Like, you know, what I just said before about like, you know, we can give services, but if you don't, if you don't know advocacy, 
um, and you don't take into an account, uh, you're really like not doing your patients any good. You're not doing your field any good. Uh, this idea that you you could administer treatment, but it's government too that that's deciding who gets the treatment and when. And if you don't know all of those aspects of the system that things like sociologists understand, epidemiologists, they understand a lot better than I do. Um, and uh, I've come to appreciate that more. Um, but also I've just been able to meet uh, just some, just some very cool people in different fields and, and, you know, learn a lot of new things. Um, so I think our field of any, you know, we're a neat college because we have a lot of fields that are very traditionally public health, but then we have these other one nursing OT, PT speech that are more allied health. And then trying to figure out that, you know, how to bridge them has been an interesting growth um, time. I don't know, as someone, I mean, you, especially like as Dean, Associate Dean of Research, like, how do you make that? How do you, what do you see has been that like process of bridging? So, so I would say that um, I agree with you. One of the things that I absolutely love about our college is the opportunity to learn from our colleagues in other disciplines that some are more closely aligned with our own than others, but still, you know, the opportunity to have colleagues who do health policy work or epidemiology and, mm -hmm. you know, as we were talking about before, help, you know, remind us to be nimble enough to shift between thinking about the individual patient in front of us to thinking about how does this impact us on the population level. Mm -hmm. you know, I I'm really excited right now about where we are in our maturity. Um, I think these next two to three years, as we continue to evolve and mature and get ready to move into our new building, which I think is is really going to be an opportunity for us to truly get together um, and truly learn from one another. Um, I think the next couple of years are critical for us post-pandemic to get to know each other again, to mm -hmm. start exploring these relationships. And I know I would like nothing more, you know, echoing back to earlier in the conversation, I would like nothing more than to see you and your colleagues do more work with the people in machine learning, the people in mm -hmm. health policy, and to see us writing papers about, hey, the population is aging. We know more people are going to suffer from Alzheimer's. We know more people are yeah. going to suffer strokes. And we're going to see more cases of aphasia. What can we do to not only learn how to deliver the best treatments, but how do we affect policy to make sure that those treatments are available to the vast majority of patients? And I think that's really the great potential of our college not just in the next two to three years, but once we're in that new building, I'm really hoping that all of those collaborations just truly accelerate. Yeah, no, I com I completely agree. I think that's like really the wave of the future. I'm thinking of, uh, yeah, I think maybe two, three years ago, we have our, our uh, assistant professor in, our, uh, in epidemiology, Aaron Kulik, who, mm -hmm. you know, when I do Alzheimer's research and I see patients, specifically memory disorders across the table and I give them naming tests and talk with them, you know, that's one thing. But then when I saw her talks, her job talks on like, she does geomapping of, of dementia incidents along, you know, roadways and looks at the correlation of that with like pollution and like these pollutants that are neurotoxic. And I see that stuff and I'm like, oh my goodness, that is amazing. And, you know, mm -hmm. just like the data are so compelling and just thinking of it in such a totally different way. And uh, yeah, and it, it just, yeah, you're right. Like everything, you know, that if, if finding ways of, of integrating those two, 
uh, that, you know, that systems level of seeing a patient with a memory disorder across the table versus like, you know, here's this person who everyone on their block has it because they're on a major roadway where these, these, you know, chemicals are being emitted. Uh, it just makes, I agree. It makes it really interesting. Yeah. So I mm -hmm. want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about something a little bit different. Um, yeah. many of us know that you have a program of research in swearing. Ah, I'm, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to date us again for a moment and hopefully That's fine. we'll get this reference, but I'm not going to ask you to be George Carlin and repeat the seven dirty words for us, but I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit about that research and what you've learned in that space? Oh, it's a great question. It's a kind of an interesting story. I, during my PhD, uh, so I was a speech pathologist early on. I did my master's in speech and then I did my PhD in kind of cognitive psychology, experimental psychology. And during my PhD, uh, grad students don't make a lot of money. So I worked as a clinician in the hospitals per diem. I was seeing a lot of patients with brain injury. And during that time, I got really interested in I, patients curse at you a lot. Um, they are very emotionally labile after a stroke. They're crying, they're laughing, they're cursing. And almost like I, I started getting this feeling like, well, there's like different flavors of cursing that's happening. You know, for someone with Alzheimer's disease who's cursing at you versus someone with stroke who'll curse at you and will start crying and apologizing. And then someone with a TBI who will just, you know, they'll, they'll curse at you. And again, they'll start crying and apologizing. It's almost like this, I, I was really got interested in the process of why, why that was happening. Um, as a PhD student, and then as a postdoc, I was like, I put kind of backburnered it because I was doing more, uh, I don't know, kind of serious stuff. And then, you know, as an assistant professor, I was like, ah, I'm interested in it still, but I, 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 you know, have a real more serious line of research. I can't be messing with it. And then when I, at the end of being, you know, an associate professor full, I reached the period of honest, like I felt very stale in my research. I just felt bored. And I was like, you know what? I've wondered about this for 20 years, ever since I was a PhD student and working in the hospitals on the weekends, getting cursed at, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to study it. And so I started, you know, looking a little bit at it. I, I, you know, looked at like all this literature from the 1800s, these neurologists who would describe these patients, like almost like, you know, if you go back and read that like old British, British medical journal stuff from the 1800s, and it's like bedlam and that uh -huh. sort of like, you know, <laughs> and like real, very like flourishing Victorian prose. I, so I found a lot of those old, like 1800s, the first articles in brain were around these people that were arrested because they, they thought they were publicly drunk, but they had had strokes and they were cursing uncontrollably. And then, yeah, got interested that way and then started really sort of figuring out like, you know, what's the physiology of it? What's the, why do people have, you know, why is it that someone can, you know, a safe can fall on someone's head and all of a sudden they can only curse at you. Um, <laughs> so really it all came out of just being like, you know, the novelty of it. Uh, but then when I got more and more interested in it, I was like, there's a real neat science behind it um, and a real interesting neurological, some interesting neurological theories. We, I then... The more I've gotten into it, the more I've realized there are actually some treatment implications. I started looking more into like uh, teenagers with Tourette's who 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 can't stop. They have coprolalia, and they'll describe it as like one of the most debilitating things, symptoms that they have. Um, they'll say like, you know, people don't take them seriously, um, and like that's one of the things that they're most ashamed of. And like, if anything, like that's the one thing about Tourette's that they just can't 
handle. Um, so I've gotten more and more interested in being like, there's some stuff we could probably do um, uh, for actually like leveraging this science side of it to, to for, for treatment. Um, and yeah, so it's led to kind of an interesting, you know, it's still like, I'd say like maybe a third of what I do is cursing. Um, and it's like my nights and weekends work that's not funded, but really interesting to me and that I would like to kind of seek external funding for. But it's also a weird thing for funding, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, how do you see, you, you have to really, it's a fine line of being like, you can make a compelling case for it, but is the world ready for it? I don't know, um, but you, you gotta try. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I have two reactions to that. One of which is I'm, I'm like you and that I, I feel like I've got some secondary lines of research that harken back to the earlier days in my career. And, and I suspect that that's probably true for a lot of us where it's like there was some, you know, research question or clinical observation that we saw early on that's always kind of stayed with us. And, you know, we get a point in, get to a point in our careers where we want to go back to that and in, in, yeah. in kind of as a, as a hobby in some ways uh -huh. and explore it and have some fun with it and so forth. But, but my question is, I feel like anecdotally, when I've seen this in older adults, people have said, oh, he's losing his filter. Yeah. Oh, his frontal cortex isn't, mm -hmm. isn't um, impeding that impulse anymore. Is there any evidence to support that? Or is that just kind of, is that just kind of the anecdote on the street? No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, so like aging, you know, frontal cortex certainly is is uh, going down. But, you know, where you see it the most is when people have these acceleration, deceleration, like car accidents when they hit when they hit orbit of frontal cortex, so like the, the cortex right behind your eyes. Like so if you hit the windshield um, and you have very, very frontal lobe damage. And this is some of the times when you see the most cursing is uh, and the most uncontrolled cursing. And then, so it can be argued that in aging, it's like this, almost like this, you know, uh, to some extent there is frontal lobe, but more of the frontal lobes are involved. Um, so people kind of are losing their filter, but in things like stroke, all that goes out the window. So it can basically be like, the thought with that is that most of language is on the left side, but there's something about emotional language that is on the right side of our brain. So if you lose a lot of language, even like to the point where you only know one or two words, like your own name, or um, you can still curse because most, much of that, much of that emotional language is, is lateralized to the right hemisphere. So that's where it gets kind of interesting. There is stuff around frontal lobe, um, you know, lack of filter, lack of impulse control, but then there's the whole stuff about the right side of your brain kicking on um, and, you know, and basically like these words just spew out and really when they come out of people oftentimes they just they they it's this auditory feedback loop they hear it and they don't even know that they said it or they get so ashamed that they said it that they again start crying and they you know they'll, they'll cover their mouth like I'm scandalized I did that like that kind of thing yeah so yeah it's pretty interesting so do we see the same thing in in younger people who suffer a traumatic brain injury when they're say playing hockey and they go face first into the boards and they they damage you know they they hit their their forehead first yeah so in what depends on severity so if it's like in post concussive syndrome you don't see it at all it really needs to be a pretty severe brain injury before you start seeing that level you do see sub i mean you know one of the one of the you know as you do concussion research one of the 
you know, longstanding symptoms is irritability and, um, uh, you know, a really, really diminished threshold for, for really flying off the handle. Um, but not specifically like cursing as a, like uncontrolled cursing as one of the behaviors um, uh, that has been reported in that, like in post-concussive syndrome, it's pretty severe brain injury to where someone will just like um, lose like the impulse control. But it also goes along with like the agitation that people experience, like as they're, as they're coming out of minimally conscious state, like, you know, the first few weeks after a very severe brain injury is like people are in restraints, they're grabbing at their lines, they're pulling out, you know, they're pulling out their NG tube, all sorts of things. Uh, you know, they're cursing at you and saying all sorts of stuff that they mm -hmm. wouldn't normally um, do. So I don't think you see it typically in the, in the sort of like very, even very severely concussed athletes, but you do see some of the impulse stuff yeah. um, in those folks. So, so as we begin to, to wind down our time together, mm -hmm. um, you and I have both um, lived in Philadelphia for quite some time, but we're both Tulane alums. Yes. We both have a sweet spot in our hearts for the city of New Orleans. And I'm not going to ask you to comment on New Orleans because otherwise we'll go on for another hour oh talking my about restaurants and old haunts. But mm -hmm. tell, me what, tell me what you've learned to love about Philadelphia. Oh, well, you know, it's interesting. Philadelphia for me, um, I moved here when I was in about the fifth grade. Um, and so if realtors have a realtors have a, a saying about Philadelphia, I don't know if you've heard this, Philadelphia, Philly by 40. Is no. that if you if you grow up here, you hate it. And then you, everyone comes back by the time they turn 40. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> I feel like kind of the same thing, like kind of where you grew up, there's like a stigma of, of being, of not leaving. So yeah. I felt that for a little while, but over time I've come to really like Philadelphia, like as its own, as its own place. I think I've, I have very good feelings about Philadelphia as a, as just a, like a place that is endears itself, has endeared itself to me, but it's taken time. Um, when I went to college in New Orleans, it was, I was, uh, that maybe senior year in high school here, somebody hit me in the ear with an ice ball that had, and, and when we were doing like snowball fights and like the bullies, what they would do is they put a rock in a, they put a snowball around a rock and then they throw that at you. And I got, I remember walking home from school and getting hit in the side of the head with a, a, an ice ball in the ear. And it was at that moment, I was like, I'm leaving Philadelphia and I'm never coming back. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, one of the big reasons I decided to go to New Orleans was like, I, that feeling of like running your hands under the faucet and like, you know, of your hands hurting so much and be like, I don't, I can't deal with this. Um, but yeah, now I, I, I like it. My own kids here and, uh, yeah, yeah, Philly by forty. I think there's really something to that. Yeah, I've I've never I've never heard that phrase before. But you know, somebody who's also been here for now for over twenty five years and also is over the age of forty, um, it the the phrase definitely resonates with me. And and mm -hmm. I I feel like the longer I've been here too, I've I've uh, my affection for the city has continued to grow. And um, you know, even though I live out in the suburbs, I, the more time that I've spent on Temple's campus and in North Philadelphia, the more I actually wish that I, I lived in the city and could take advantage of, of more of the resources yeah. uh, that are available in the city. I mean, every time we're in the city on a weekend night, we, we say, boy, you know, it'd be nice just to walk up to our apartment or somewhere and not have to make that 45 minute drive back to the suburbs. I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, because we have kids about the same age, David. So like, you know, that's the, that's the tricky part. Like it, you know, kids ruin everything. Um, but, 
but the idea of my my dream is the loft apartment, the loft apartment in like Center City Loft District, and then like Cabin in the Poconos would be I would that would be the the, <laughs> the dream. But you know, <laughs> one day, one day, exactly. <laughs> so so um, last question for you. So yeah, I please. obviously have this great honor of following you and taking over as the next host of of Common Voice. What uh, what words of wisdom do you have for me as we wrap up our time together? Oh gosh, I mean you're such a natural at this. Um, I uh, um, I think I think the idea of of um, alternating a uh, especially with our college of alternating an allied health and a public health person is really good. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe even connecting, uh, you know, the idea of the synergy that we talked about between the two would be good, and and trying to um, mold that theme. I don't even know how to do it. I never was able to do it, but I I saw when people did it well. Mm -hmm. uh, some people do it very naturally, like Sarah Bass and our in our college did it very well. Um, but you're good. You're good. You're natural with that. I I think maybe that would be the one thing. Um, but you know, you make it yours. Yeah. Well, I definitely appreciate that, Jamie. Uh -huh. And again, I want to thank Dr. Jamie Riley, professor in our Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders in the College of Public Health for joining us on this most recent issue of our uh, episode of Common Voice, the uh, college's podcast. Um, but again, Jamie, thank you for your time today. Thank you for sharing your, your wisdom and experience and humor with all of us. And we look forward to all of you joining us on our next episode. Thank you, David. And good luck, uh, good luck taking the helm. Thanks, you have been listening to Common Voice, a podcast of the College of Public Health of Temple University. If you are interested in learning more about our academic programs and scholarship, or providing financial support to Common Voice, our programs, or students, please visit us at www.cph.temple.edu.